Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Parker Thompson and Noah Smith, and we're, we're here to talk about labor productivity and, and a few other topics. And Parker, maybe you can start by giving some context for the conversation. You inspired me to read Cost Disease about a year ago when we've been talking about some of the relevant concepts uh, therein. Parker, you want to take it away? Yeah. As, as you know, um, my background is in venture capital these days. And I think a lot about the economy, right? And the companies that we're investing in and the seg- sectors of the economy. And, you know, as you're looking at these things, you find puzzles in the world. And an interesting puzzle is there are these parts of the economy that continue to grow, right? Prices get higher and higher. And there are other parts of the economy where things get cheaper and cheaper, right? And so you look at these things, like, for example, my house, right? It was built in the late 1800s um, when we were much poorer. So to rebuild my house, and I looked into this because I was looking at the cost of um, earthquake insurance, would be insanely cost prohibitive, right? Um, all the hand work and detail and done and so on. And you sort of say, well, gosh, why is that, right? We've got so much better technology. You know, we're so much wealthier. Um, this is a puzzle, right? And so there's a related set of puzzles that are talked about in economics that I think relate to um, labor policy and should inform the way that we think about public policy and also on the you know the venture capital side where should be we be investing to make money right so we kind of look at both sides so that was a motivation for some of the conversations that we've had we are you know fumbling our way through our world trying to figure out economics so we brought in an expert to give us his perspective on this family of issues and that expert is is Noah Smith yeah. <laughs> I'm the expert oh yeah. shoot. I thought you'd found an actual expert. Yeah, you're going to have all the answers here. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, um, labor productivity is basically just output per hour of work. Guess who has higher output per hour of work than we do? Countries where they make people work less, like France. (laughs) So let's, I mean, let's, I guess that's an interesting place to start. So, like, why does that metric matter? right? Uh, productivity per uh, hour, as opposed to uh, aggregate productivity per worker or across the economy? Well, if we have more productivity per hour, it means that we can produce less in a given number of hours. So, you know, if we could produce everything that we wanted or needed in just a couple hours of work, party, we could have the rest of the day to mess around on Twitter and troll people on the internet. Um, In fact, there's an interesting hypothesis. I haven't seen a single other person besides myself invoke this hypothesis or come up with it. So apparently it's original to me. And the idea is that if people are now using social media at work more, what, it, what that actually means is that productivity has been increasing faster than we think. In other words, we're able to do a lot of, we're able to do the stuff that we had to like work all day to do in like 1998 or 99. I was like to do 20 years before. We're now able to do in like we had to work like eight hours a day to actually do that. Now we're able to work five hours a day. We spend the other three hours, you know, sort of jerking off on on social media. Mm -hmm. And and what that actually means is that we're actually a lot more productive and we're taking and we're just taking leisure at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we're just doing it in a really dumb way as opposed to spending that time with our family and working a six hour day. Um, Exactly. 
Yeah. That's- if, so, so what I found was you, you can do a quick back of the envelope calculation. What I found was that if the amount of work we actually like time on task at work has been decreasing by two minutes per year per year since the year 2000, that explains a hundred percent of the productivity slowdown in rich countries. In other words, if every two years social media tech gets better in a way that makes us likely to slack off two minutes of each day more per year, there has been no productivity slowdown at all. Yeah, well, so that seemed, that would potentially explain productivity in jobs like ours where we have these distractions in our phones and all of these things, but not necessarily in the Amazon warehouse where it's well, like very well understood where you're spending every second of every day. How do you, how do you think about that with respect to this theory? I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to lead with that to say that we look at the <laughs> aggregate productivity statistics and there's a lot that could be messing us up which is why I prefer to look at specific industries. Now, there are certain industries where, uh, you know, some people say productivity has gone down and then others can test that, like healthcare. So if you look at healthcare and you look at you know, the number of dollars generated per hour, it's actually gone down. But if you look at healthcare and the, you know, sort of like health improvement outcomes uh, generated per hour of work by nurses and doctors, that's actually gone up at a reasonable rate. Um, because health outcomes have really improved a lot. There's, you know, there's a lot of different ways of measuring productivity in the health sector. But when you look at construction, it's really easy. And construction productivity has gone down. And basically now it's more expensive to build the same house. It's more expensive to build the same mile of road, the same mile of train track than it was, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or or 50 years ago. And it's this is this is a scary thing because what it means is that we're going to have really great cell phones and apps and, you know, like smart TVs and stuff like that in ramshackle falling down houses. So, the, I mean, the classic sort of conservative argument for that would be like, oh, well, we just have terrible environmental laws and labor laws and so on and so forth. How do you think about explaining that shift in productivity or the decrease in productivity? Well, OK, so if you look at infrastructure construction costs, it's very easy to measure. You can say like, OK, a mile of train track in America versus a mile of train track in France, a mile of road in America versus a mile of road in France. We see that it costs us about twice as much per mile of stuff to build it. And yet France is not just, you know, highly unionized, but also non-union workers, even in France are covered under collective bargaining agreements. So they get the same, you know, they get to benefit from, from the wage boost from collective bargaining. So basically France is unionized up the wazoo and French construction workers actually get paid a little more than American construction workers. And yet it costs France only half the amount to build each mile of infrastructure that costs us. So it's not labor and the conservatives are blowing smoke. What is the driver? The, the short answer is nobody knows. And a lot of people are looking into it. The long answer is it's probably a whole bunch of stuff there. We have an extremely inefficient procurement process by which, you know, sort of bids are made. We either have one of two bad systems. The first bad system is completely uncompetitive building a uh, bidding where you just have construction workers who are sort of friends of the government who always do it and, and basically let and the government just like overcharges or allows them to overcharge a ton or even a big corporation. You can have this sort of longstanding relationship where you're essentially getting overcharged, which is bad for the company, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing is that sometimes we have bidding, but basically it's just lowest cost. So um, whoever can do the thing cheapest gets it, but often that's extremely low quality and then you just have to go build it again. So build, bidding process is one problem. Another problem is that 
because of our laws, we have a whole lot of regulatory reviews. In other words, if, if I don't like constructions happening, I can file either an environmental or some other kind of challenge in most places. And that challenge can take years to go through, years during which the builder isn't making profit, has to retain staff, blah, 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 and has to jack up the cost a whole lot. So that's another problem. A third problem is that when you're talking about government-built uh, infrastructure, our budgeting process is very uncertain. So we don't do a lot of like you know long-term budgeting. Basically, it's always a political fight, and then sometimes budget gets cut, sometimes they get raised, blah, blah, blah. What that means is that we don't do enough maintenance, and there's this sort of exponential curve where the longer you let things like roads go without maintenance, the longer, the exponentially more they cost to replace. Uh, there's land acquisition costs. We have a particularly difficult land acquisition process in the United States. Basically, there's like a number of other things that it could be, and nobody's really sure quantitatively how much these things matter. Yeah, I mean, was, I'd be curious to understand how the procurement process, for example, differs in these places that have uh, more efficient uh, production. Of right. Animals. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a it's a hugely important area of research. It could save our country so many bazillions of dollars. But then there's also I think there's a lack of political urgency, a lack of political will to actually do that, because we view construction employment as this sort of counter-cyclical thing where, you know, whenever there's a recession, we can pay a whole bunch of guys to go on construction work. And, and in general, construction work takes a lot of otherwise restless young men who would be selling drugs and shooting each other and puts them into some sort of beneficial hard work. And so there's, I think there's a reluctance to replace this massive, massive uh, piece of labor demand with just nothing. Because we don't have an economy that comprehensively provides consistent labor demand for, you know, everybody, basically. We don't maintain full employment. Construction work becomes this important way of soaking up surplus young male labor in a way that nothing else will really do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an, what, do you understand what percentage of um, the capital that goes into these um, infrastructure projects actually goes to labor versus, right, you got to buy a lot of steel, you got to buy a lot of our, our materials costs are not that high, so it's not materials costs. There are things like land costs, so there's when, when you have big delays that force the builder to take a loss, they will charge you more upfront to compensate for that risk, and that money goes into profits. So that goes into capital income, not labor. The, the short answer is no, it's really hard to tell. And that data should, in principle, be available, but so far isn't widely available that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So, so your position would be that it's it's hard to blame uh, labor costs for the inflation of healthcare and what you might call the unproductive industries, construction, so could, healthcare, so on and so forth. Right. So, so labor costs. No, um, we could blame overstaffing. In other words, we might. It might not be that we're paying people too high wages. In fact, we probably are not. Uh, our wages just aren't that high. It might be that we're paying too many people to stand around, sort of doing useless stuff. Or, or waiting for like regulatory crap to be approved. If you look at Japan, Japan has this problem probably more. In construction, Japan is extremely efficient, but in, a lot of companies have very inefficient uh, overstaffing where you'll, there's like elevator operators and there's a million people behind the counter of Starbucks, you know, all sort of like getting each other's way. And there's this massive 
you know, sort of sort of overstaffing in Japan, in Japanese companies, partly because the, the way they're set up encourages them to maintain high employment levels and, and partly because of just tradition, bad management models, whatever. But the point is that it's easily possible to have problems of overstaffing without having people being paid to them. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it can, conceptually, it makes sense. I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical by default that that would apply, for example, to our healthcare system, right? Like, I don't know, I'm not an expert in the healthcare system, but it seems like there's no cultural or structural incentive to overstaff, even if you have other problems like fee for service, which might incentivize you to do more stuff. That's not necessarily directly overstaffing. You're just saying, well, everybody's busy. No one's standing around. They're just doing stuff they shouldn't do and charging for it. There's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. a lot of that. Yeah, but that yeah. seems distinct from overstaffing, right? Like over... Oh, no, that is, that is similar to overstaffing. Okay, okay. I mean, that's... Uh, so basically, if you have people... If you have a whole bunch of people doing... If you have 10 people doing work that two people could do, you're overstaffed. Overstaffing does not necessarily mean idleness. Yeah, okay. So I guess the, the unified theory of cost disease would be like, look, this is all just about relative productivity across industries. Construction is, is not highly productive. It's not increasing quickly. Healthcare is not blah. You just explain it this way. And it sounds like what you're saying is actually it's more complicated than that. It's not even clear that effect is it exists. You have this set of problems in healthcare. Maybe we see some solutions set in this separate set of problems in construction and they just both suck. Right. 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 I mean, uh, so, but, but I'm, I'm not necessarily for a unified theory of productivity. <laughs> sure. Sure. They're fun, but maybe not useful all the time. Because unified theories are cool, but often so one argument is simply that there's a cost associated with squeezing efficiency out of an industry and that a richer, the richer a society is, the less you know, important it is to pay that cost. So we're so rich, we might as well spend a whole bunch of extra money on construction and crap like that. Of course, that doesn't apply to the poor people. They're still getting overcharged for, for rent stuff as a, as a downstream consequence of of overpriced construction, but maybe, you know, rich people who actually have the wheel, the political influence, make the policy, whatever, think, ah, you know, we could, we could tighten up efficiency and all this stuff, but why do it? We've got enough money. Yeah. I mean, well, and that actually might apply to the, the housing industry, for example, because you're not individually deciding what the regulations are going to be that apply to your house, right? We're collectively deciding. And the same goes for healthcare, right? Like, you are at best picking an insurer and know very little else. And so those are those, those tend to be structures that represent the collective as opposed to the individual. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, like, although it's hard to separate the collective and the individual, but yeah. And so, so I think that healthcare is going to have very different problems from construction. Construction and healthcare are going to have very different problems from education. Uh, and, and those are three of the biggest industries where people point out problems. Another industry that everyone overlooks is wealth management. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a wealth manager and say, manage my wealth, the wealth manager is going to put, is going to diversify your portfolio, which you could do in about 10 minutes on a discount brokerage or betterment or whatever. And they're going to charge you say 1% of your entire wealth every year, which over the course of a multi-decade investment horizon can add up to a quarter or more of your total life savings just for this guy to do what you could do in five minutes with a discount brokerage, wealth management is insanely inefficient and just begging to be disrupted. Yeah, but, I mean, my, my understanding there is that those costs aren't going up. They're sticky. They're not going down. That's right. That's but, right. But, yeah, wait, uh, but, they're, but they're scaled. I mean, like one per, at, 
as wealth goes up, 1% of your wealth per year goes up. Yeah. Although, I mean, if you take the labor productivity theory view of this, right, that person can't service more people, right? Like they don't get that much more efficient. Like I've seen the software that no, these... but they're getting more money for the same work. Yeah. In the context of a growing economy. So yeah, I, I mean, exactly. it just, is wealth management growing as a percentage of GDP? Do you know? It's an interesting um, question. Wealth ma- no. Wealth management grew massively as a percent of GDP through the crisis and has flatlined since. Yeah. I mean, I, it's an interesting point. I mean, I do think that there's a great opportunity to apply software to that field and at least compress those fees, if not eliminate a lot of those people. And you are seeing the betterments of the world do that. Uh, my personal theory is that you are the kind of person who uh, thinks about your wealth in your neocortex, right? Like it's an intellectual activity and that that's just not true of the vast majority of people. And so this ends up being about having having my guy or gal I can trust. And like, yeah, it's crazy when you think about it as 25% of your net worth, but that's just not the way we think about it at all. I would say that applies to like my hobby horse is, is realtors. I just can't, it just drives me nuts that it's 6% of yeah. every transaction. It's insane, but it's the same thing, you know, for the vast and, majority of people, it's the biggest transaction they'll ever right. make in their life. Interestingly, that's, that's now finally coming down. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing some great innovation there in the last few years. I don't, I don't know. You, you may know the numbers better than I, I mean, I don't know that Redfin made a big dent, but it seems like the next generation is a little bit more promising in that regard. Right. So I think, yeah, I know you're absolutely right. Um, the 6% commission, giant bloat. It may be that we as a society have learned to tolerate bro- bloat because of A, massive levels of wealth, possibly in the, you know, at least for the rich people. B, uh, sort of inflated expectations of future growth. Like we're America, there'll be plenty of stuff for all. I'm going to get a great job and be rich. Blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, so who cares if I pay 6% of it? You know, don't need to be cheap when you're going to be super rich. And so, so there could be that just psychological complacency. It could be, you know, result of bad system, of bad equilibria, as a result of federalism. You know, we've got, it could be that bad systems start in one little location, spread to others, or governments can't coordinate and cracking down on some of these things. It could be because Americans are dumb. I don't know. The answer is I, I don't really know what's going on. There's so many different issues. It's, it's not necessarily the kind of thing where you can get a, a unified. Yeah, I mean, I think the real estate one to me, I look at it and it's just like, it makes sense the way it's priced, right? If I had to pay 3% as the buyer, that would get compressed really quickly, right? That's real money to me. On the sell side, it's much harder to sell a house on your own. And so you're paying for it. It's free to me as the buyer. Collusion right. between the agents, like right? That. I mean, yeah. that's the classic thing with health insurance, right? It's like, that's not me paying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the principal agent problem. Yeah, so let's maybe shift topics a little bit. And I, I mean, you've written recently about wage growth, right? And maybe suggested that it might not be as dire as people generally talk about it as. Could you talk a little bit about your perception of um, where wage growth is at today across different uh, demographics? Wage growth across different demographics. So wage growth, the last maybe half a year, it's actually been pretty good, which follows a long period of anemic wage growth. So there's many issues with wage growth. One issue is, has wa- have wages kept up with productivity? And the answer to that is, it depends on what measure you use. By the measures I like, wages kept up with productivity through the year 2000 and have since diverged a bit. What are the measures that you like? How do you think about it? When you use inflation measures, there's CPI and PCE, mm-hmm. and PCE will tell you lower inflation, therefore they'll say your real purchasing power has gone up by more. 
there's arguments for using both, but if you use PCE, it looks like wages are going to more. Uh, a more important factor than that difference is actually whether you include benefits. So wages, cash wages plus benefits have gone up by a heck of a lot more than just cash wages have. So when you add in benefits, there's been you know substantial rise. If you use the more sort of optimistic low inflation number PCE and you count benefits, then those together will show that the divergence between pay and productivity is only about two decades old. So it seems like there's some numbers that suggest that, and we're talking about these things generally, right? And sometimes talking about the, the average hides the, the interesting data. It seems like in the frame of this uh, labor productivity conversation, there are folks like us who work broadly in this knowledge economy. Uh, you, you might not be more productive as a writer than the person you know, who was doing it 20 years ago um, on average, right? But the average software engineer who's building accounting software is much more productive than the average accountant who was doing accounting 50 years ago by hand, right? So those people seem to be doing quite well. And then you've got this other segment of the economy where you're talking about, you know, we talk about the gig economy and so on, where, well, they're just not receiving benefits at all, or at least at least not part of their, as part of their employer compensation. Are there multiple economies here? Are there multiple labor markets? And is it more useful to think about it that way? Or is it useful to just sort of say like, well, here's the one graph and it's, it's pretty good? That's a good question. I mean, markets are undoubtedly segmented. Yeah, like the markets are segmented, but we don't really know like how much. Like uh, if you want to retrain from being like a doctor to being a coder, that is hard. If you want to retrain from being like a cashier to being like a salesperson, that's not so hard. Retraining is actually harder in the upper segments of the market. But the hardest is going between sort of levels. So if, you, if you're a cashier and you want to become a doctor, that's really, really hard. There's reduced mobility that way. So the short answer is that, yes, these segmented markets are really important to look at, but it's very hard to get that data. And it's very hard to know what, how hard it is to really move between these things. Indeed is, at this point, almost a monopolist in the online job search thing. They've got mm-hmm. a huge market share. Uh, they hire some of the best economists, including several friends of mine, to, uh, who of course are the best, um, <laughs> to, to analyze their incredibly rich labor data. The answer is yes, wages differ a lot between a lot of different things, but it's hard to tell how systematic, like what's the reason for that? Like if, if one occupation has had stronger wage growth, does that mean that the returns to human capital have gone up in that occupation? Or does that mean that, you know, the, the rents are, are more rents are being extracted in the industry? Like if wealth managers make more, does that mean that basically wealth management has gotten more valuable or does that mean that wealth managers have gotten better at ripping people off? Or does that mean the government has enacted laws that allow wealth managers to extract more value legally or force you to use wealth managers more through your 401k or whatever, blah, blah. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is to look at where those like, okay, they're making more money, but are they living better? Right? What's their standard of living? So I think doctors are an interesting example right. of this, right? Like you, a doctor, you know, 50 years ago would have been um, relatively upper class, right? They would have been one of the richer folks in town and they might have not even been taking insurance, right? They're just taking fee for service um, directly with you. And now it's not that great of a job by and large. You're sort of solidly middle class. And by the way, you've got all these loans because you were 35 when you got out of school and it was just, you know, you do it for the love these days. So it's interesting to, I don't, I don't know particularly about wealth managers. Anecdotally, it seems like the ones that I know are doing well relative to the doctors that I know 
but it's not obvious that just, you know, because their salaries are growing, their costs are, aren't growing as well to, to maintain the same standard of living. The, the difficulty, there's a couple difficulties, but there's one huge, huge, huge difficulty measuring standards of living from one con to another. And that is the issue of what people buy changes. Suppose that the price of milk goes up and instead of milk, people start drinking orange juice. All right. Now, suppose the price of milk goes up and the price of orange juice stays the same. It used to be that almost everybody drank milk. The price of milk goes up and everybody switches to orange juice. Well, the question is this, how much worse off are they? So one argument says, well, they're less able to afford milk. So therefore, we're going to keep a, a fixed basket of what they buy. We're going to say, since you, you, know, you can't drink as much milk as you used to for the money, so therefore prices have gone way, way up. Another says, well, you switched to orange juice, so you actually must like orange juice pretty well. Let's try to estimate how much you like orange juice relative to milk. And let's assume that the fact that you switched to orange juice actually made it so your life hasn't, your standard of living hasn't actually dropped that much from being forced to switch from milk to orange juice. In that sense, we'll say inflation is pretty low. So I mean, is that, is that the CPI, basically? Well, in general, the, the, the PCE will allow more substitution between things. So the, the PCE will allow more of changing weights. So it we'll takes into account substitution effects more. With PCE, you're more likely to say, oh, well, actually, you're, you're fine because now you've, you've still got orange juice and that's not very good. Yeah. And the CPI is more likely to say, well, look how expensive milk got. You're screwed. So I'm curious, like broadly, this seems, it seems really hard to figure out how to think about things like, well, I've got a much better TV than my parents and they had a much better TV than their grandparents. You maybe want to think about those things, right? The effect oh, of yeah. technology on standard of living. But yeah, uh, and, and they try to do that, by the way. So, so we know our TVs are better. What they do is they try to make hedonic adjustments. So they look at how much people will pay for a flat screen relative to a uh, CRT, right? Mm-hmm, and, then mm-hmm. they'll, and then they'll try to adjust based on that willingness to pay. They'll say, okay, well, we're not going to count on a flat screen TV the same as a CRT. We're going to count it uh, you know, this much better based on these relative prices. And so you, you, can, you can assess characteristics of things. You can sort of do a regression and use the output of that regression as your measure of like quality, blah, 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 blah. And so they do try to do that, adjust for quality. What you can't adjust for is the existence of things that didn't even exist before. Mm-hmm. So like, not that we have better smartphones than people in the 60s. It's that a smartphone exists. And people are going to shift their spending from whatever they spent money on in the 60s, you know, like, I don't know, bombs or pinball or whatever. Did people spend money on this <laughs> who knows beatles records Acid. lots of beatles records yeah like beatles records and so and now smartphones and, and you switch and you can't do a hedonic regression because you can't just say all right well smartphones are this much better than beatles records because who knows like you don't know and so you have to that's one of the most difficult things but then of course the criticism of this is if you assume that new technology is really really great if if all the old stuff you know, if you used to have really cheap, like healthcare and education and housing, and then those all get more expensive, but now you've got super cheap smartphones and social networks and like, you know, I don't know, like meme generating AIs and you like spend all your day in your tiny little tumble down shack, letting your diabetes slowly eat your body to death yeah. with only a high school diploma because uh, college costs too much. 
but you're on Twitter and you're having a really great old time trolling people on Twitter. You're actually happier than a well-fed, well-housed, well-educated 60s person would have been. Like, is that utopia or is that dystopia? Mm -hmm. That fundamental question drives which inflation measure we should use, which drives whether we think real wages have increased or not. Did you have a, what's your perspective? What's the answer? I don't know. I mean, it, it's very fashionable to make fun of the book uh, Ready Player One. Uh-huh. When it came out, people liked it. Now people hate it, probably because the author is a big doofus. But I thought Ready Player One was this sort of like dark, this, this cheery, goofy young adult novel. I thought it was this dark, haunting satire because everybody's living in like shipping containers, <laughs> like in shacks, basically. And they are all playing the most amazing MMO you could ever imagine. And so everybody's living their whole life in this virtual MMO while the world falls apart around them. And to me, this said, you're not as rich as you think you are from these virtual gadgets. And it, it's a dystopia. You step back and you look at it and you say, this is a dystopia. So that, that's how I like Ready Player One. And you have to ask whose standards, like if you grow up with a smartphone, and without Beatles records, then your tastes are different than someone than someone who came before you. You know, it, there's there's the old adage that kids can have fun playing with a cardboard box. Right? <laughs> it's true. Like if we all had cardboard boxes and we were all like kids, and all we wanted to do was play with the cardboard boxes, GDP would be really goddamn low, but our standard of living would be really high. Yeah, well, I mean, GDP itself seems very narrowly useful. I think it, really it's more interesting. And the question I had for you was more around like, what are the best ways to think about and measure this, right? Because it seems like right. there's a diminishing return to a flatter, thinner TV. And even with healthcare, we live longer, but much of the cost happened at the end and end of life care isn't necessarily that much better. So some of us survive cancers that we wouldn't have otherwise, but it's not obvious that healthcare is improving as fast as costs are going up. And so I struggle just to think about how to measure these things and answer the question, is it getting better? So I'm curious to circle back to labor. Um, I'm curious how you interpret the growth in, um, at least in the U.S., and maybe we could contrast this to other places, in the freelance economy, right? We talk about the gig economy, but it actually seems at the higher end, like this is, this is a broad trend as well, right? Like it's not just people driving Uber who are freelancers, it's, you know, across the knowledge economy as well. Like, like, what do you think of as the motivations driving this? And is it broadly a good thing, broadly a bad thing, somewhat mixed? I would say that the gig economy is tiny. Do you know what the um, stats are on, on freelance work in general? Because I feel like, I, I, I don't want to quote the numbers, but I feel like I saw them and was shocked how large a percentage of Americans don't get a W-2. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. So, What's happened is that we've fragmented the, the, the company. Gig economy kind of stuff where you're just like, you know, constantly looking for your next gig is very rare. However, having clients and, you know, like doing contract work and contracting out is incredibly common now. So those are two different things. Often, those contractual relationships are very long-term relationships. And that makes it basically like being an employee, except without a lot of the protection, legal protections that we developed for employees over the years. I mean, do you think that's just the, that's a pretty compelling explanation of this? It's a way for businesses to shed costs and shift those onto the worker and reflective of the power of the corporation vis-a-vis the worker. And that's just kind of the end of it. I I mean, I think 
like the, the short answer is I don't know. This is the, the the fragmentation of the corporation into you know sort of like webs of relationships of like outsourcers and consultants and contractors. That whole thing, I think I don't understand that well yet, and I need to understand more about it. That's a very important and powerful shift. I need to understand what laws made that happen. Well, it may not be laws. For example, there's a technological right. explanation for this. Exactly. Yeah. What technology has made that happen? What cultural things have made that happen? I um, mean, I, my hobby horse theory would be that communication technology has made it much easier to form these relationships. So they may end up being long-term, right? But discovery was a much harder problem when it was newspaper ads than when we're on the internet. So both social networks and non-familiar relationships are easier to form. And so it's easier just to... Well, that's right. I mean, that's the obvious reason. But then the the shift toward outsourcing and, and contracting started long before the tools were in place to contract and maintain business relationships over the internet. Yeah, totally. Fine. And maybe like two decades earlier. And so would the shift have gone as far and as deep with not for the internet? Almost certainly not. But the fact that it, the trend started then means that we might want to look at changes in how companies finance themselves, how changes in executives are compensated, how changes in, and some of those go back to legal changes and some are just sort of cultural changes. There's a lot of stuff going on here, and I can't say just off the top of my head, it's technology, it's the internet, and wave my sure, hand. Sure, sure. Do you know, are there parallel parallel trends in other countries or a complete lack of them that would give us some insight into that, right? Like, does Europe look somewhat this way, or it's just like these these are unique? Oh, yeah, somewhat, but le- much less. So yeah. if you look at other rich countries, um, or at least like in Europe and, and East Asia, it's happened less. The, the fragmentation, but it has happened some. It absolutely has happened to some degree. It's more common to see offshoring than domestic outsourcing and contracting in a lot of those countries. A lot of those countries, basically the companies had to wait until the cost penalty they were incurring for doing things in-house was so huge that they basically had to send stuff overseas, especially to China. That's interesting. So a big topic in VC land and technology land is this idea that um, well, in the past, technology has always come with new jobs. Now we have AI, we have robotics, yada, 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 and we're going to end all the jobs. I know it's hard to predict the future, but like, it just how do you think about this conversation? Like, what, how would you evaluate the claim if you can? What data would you look at to think about this? Like, are we, so, for example, one way to interpret the tiny gig economy and the broader uh, 1099 economy is a softening in demand for labor, particularly on the um, low-skill end. And that's a leading indicator, despite high employment, of the effects of automation. Um, or you could say that's just a dumb idea. That's not the way it works, and we're going to be fine. Like, how do you think about this? It's project? really hard. To, it's hard to tell because what is automation? So, so automation isn't easily measurable in data. So, some people have said, okay, well, look at the number. Look at industrial robot. And industrial robot use actually does predict lower human labor use. And people say, well, that's a, you know, industrial robots are this very narrow definition. You have to have like an articulated like machine that does specific physical processes and blah, blah, blah. This is very high specific definition that only affects a few people. Why don't you look more generally at, inform- at investment? Information investment has been correlated with increased employment. Uh, but then isn't there some sort of middle ground where, like, where you don't look at all IT, you look at some sort of IT that we intuitively think of as automating labor instead of augmenting labor. Um, well, that's very fine, and people sort of argue back and forth about that. And another question is, has 
you know, has technology been polarizing? Have we had what they call skill bias technological change where, you know, Mark Andreessen had this famous line where he said, in the future, there'll be two kinds of workers, those who tell computers what to do and those who are told to do what, told what to do by computers. And he later repudiated uh, this line, but then, but I think that this is basically the idea of skill bias technological change. Mm-hmm. Um, technology is harder to use than before. You can't just like open up your car and fix it. It's harder. You can't just like, you know, uh, a computer is hard, harder in some sense to use than like a basic machine tool or whatever. And because of that, uh, the smart and highly educated people are going to get more and more money and everyone else is going to get less and less. And there actually is some evidence that this happened during the 1980s. And in fact, it probably wasn't so sort of like modern automation. Uh, it could have been some machine tool stuff, actually. That machine tools could have been could have been a factor in that. And I have to look at that. Although I kind of lean against that, but but I think that a lot of it is the shift to a service economy. So service economies don't have these sort of mid skilled uh, machine operator jobs that we that we used to have. Uh, China has more of those now, and then some of those may get displaced by automation as well, and probably are getting displaced. But in the, the United States are routine cognitive and routine manual. So routine manual is like, I use this machine to punch a hole in some sheet metal. Routine cognitive is I fill out some paperwork and move it from an inbox to an outbox. Those kind of jobs, you know, those classic like worker bee desk job and sort of like blue collar factory job have decreased. But a lot of that probably happened in the 1980s. And since the 1980s, in the 90s and 2000s, there was not much evidence that we were having this skill bias technological change. In other words, it may differ by decade. We may be looking at different things by different decades. So how do you think about the shift from the shift to a skill or a, a sorry, services based economy? So like one way of thinking about it is, well, we all got richer and therefore we want to get massages now, whereas before that maybe would have been impractical or luxury good, and therefore there's more demand for masseuses. A different way to think about it is, hey, there were a bunch of people who used to work in factories. We automated their jobs. All things being equal, they would have worked in a factory, but they need to do something. And so they're like, well, I guess I can give massages. And so you have this um, supply-driven shift towards the services economy because many people can figure out how to give massages for a low cost um, if there aren't better alternatives. I mean, maybe like um, in terms of supply driven, what you're talking about actually would be more demand driven. It could be that people want more massages. Yeah, sure. You could think of that. I was saying you could think about it either way, right? Like more people want massages. Therefore, people who worked in a factory are going to go become masseuses because they can make more money. So that would be the supply driven um, version of it, right? Or sorry, the demand driven version of it. The supply driven version was, well, if I could still get that factory job today, I'd do it, but I can't. So I'm going to be a masseuse and therefore the cost of a massage drops to the point where um, it needs demand and people who are getting richer get the, get the massages. I mean, sure. Right. Uh, that can I, this, is a, this is a way, for example, to think about the Uber economy, right? You say like, well, what's the counterfactual, right? Well, certainly if all of those people were data scientists instead of you know, wherever they're coming from, where Uber makes sense relative to their other opportunities – there just be no Uber or it would be vastly more expensive because the supply wouldn't be there. So you can look at Uber as a, um, as a backstop for, for example, failed education policy, which is one way I think about it. I mean, you could who drive Uber, drive it as a long-term thing and how many people drive it between jobs. Do you know that? 
You know, it's an interesting question. I don't know what the numbers are. I've seen some data. I'm, I'm not recalling the numbers, but I'm recalling sort of my impression of the data. If you look at it, I believe that there are a significant number. By hours, it's full-time people, but a lot of people drive part-time, right? So I think it's a mix of people. There's some people who said, hey, I can, I can go do this as, a, as my full income. Right. And there's a lot of people who... Right you know, working in an Amazon warehouse during the day. I, I rode in an Uber with a guy who worked in a Amazon warehouse and it was awesome because you're just like, right. tell me how the Amazon warehouse works. And he just gave me all the data. It was amazing. Like what are your defect rates on and so right. forth? So yeah. for him, I think, I think yeah. the idea that Uber is the future of labor is, is wrong. And that, and the Silicon Valley people tend to think this for a couple of reasons. Number one is Uber was a fast growing company that that made a lot of money for its early investors and therefore got Silicon Valley people very, very excited about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, so it's wishful thinking, yeah. Well, it's not necessarily wishful thinking. It's just, just that, you know, if if a company grows a lot in terms of the valuations that early stage investors are willing to pay, in the minds of many people in Silicon Valley, that means it's taking over the world. But actually, there, you're in this, that could be it's taking over the world. I mean, Google took over the world and Facebook took over the world and Twitter took over the world. But then sometimes it, you're not taking over the world and you're just playing in your little sandbox, you know? So sometimes it, yeah, it's like the, the percent of the labor force that's actually gig guys with Uber kind of stuff is incredibly tiny. And yeah, Uber made a lot of money for its early stage investors. And it's this big company and famous, blah, blah, blah. And Travis Kalanick said some inappropriate things, but the point is in, in terms of actually changing the world, it's not that big a deal. Like well, now, yeah, have, it seems like an example of a broader, right. Your point is saying, right. like, this and is an example of a broader trend. Not many things have been gigified. I mean, you've seen, there's like a, a small handful. There's like, you can consider Airbnb gig, although you're, it's actually renting capital. You're not actually renting labor, but in terms of actually gig labor renting, it's like Uber, Instacart, Lyft, and what? I mean, these are all just about better utilization of resources. Like Airbnb is just like, look, we had this thing. Yeah, but it ain't the future high... of work. Uh, I don't think it's the future of work either. I think I would put Mechanical Turk in the same bucket as Uber. We don't really talk about it that much, and it's not that big. But really, we're just saying, like, look, you're a human. You're right? Your brain is a pretty good computer. It can do a lot of stuff that at least today we can't do with computers. As we see the broad effects of automation, be that software, robotics, whatever, on the low end of the labor force, it seems intuitive to me, and you can tell me whether you think this is correct, that those folks are going to have fewer and fewer options. And so this broad category of options where it's like, what is my computer brain good for are going to be, or let me put it this way, because this is the way I think about it as a, you know, an investor is, look, the labor market is what it is. I can't change that, right? So if I'm going to build a business, if we're going to invest in a business, it's got to be built both for the consumers, but also for the labor market. So to me, Uber is a success story. We really wanted to have Uber not exist. We should have gone, you know, built a time machine and gone back 30 years and invested a bunch in, in education. So these people said, I, I, I just won't drive for 15 bucks an hour. I mean, Uber people are probably pretty well educated on average. Oh, you think so? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the data looks like. I don't like. know. I mean, like all the ones that I meet are. And usually, I mean, I, I always ask Uber drivers, like, or I actually only take Lyft, but um, I ask Lyft drivers, you know, what, are, what, what their background is, what else they do. Usually they're between careers, hmm. you know. Yeah. And these are people who were successful and are going to be successful uh, in the future. There's, there's some young people who are just like, you know, 
it's usually people who are between things. I meet very few people for whom Uber is like their permanent job, their fallback from not getting good enough education. Yeah, I mean, I think there were more folks people think and is a thing that tech people like to say is really powerful because obviously they want someone else to pay for their workforce, right? Like you want some distant force or, or funder to pay to give you workers who are skilled so you don't have to actually spend the money training them in-house. But you know Tim O'Reilly? I do know Tim. So Tim was talking to me about this just two days ago. He said, companies used to really train their workers. They used to really spend a lot on, on giving their workers skills. Now they don't. You know, partly that's just because we have, we're in this equilibrium where labor markets are very fluid and people move around between companies a lot. Basically, nobody really sees investing workers as a, as a real thing, thing you need to do. And um, everybody expects pe- workers to show up with their human capital already there. And so if that leads to this, uh, this chicken and egg problem where you can't get a good job until you get skills, but you can't get skills unless you work. Yeah. Well, the yeah, question is, what's the cause? Like education, education, education. But schools aren't going to teach you the specific job skills you need. Yeah, that's true. I, I think that's often often very true. I think the question is whether where's the cause and effect there, right? Do we switch jobs because our employers aren't investing in this long term, or are employers not investing in this long term because we switch jobs so frequently, right? You have the same bad problem. equilibrium. I, that's that's the cheap ass economist get out of jail free card. It's well, the, I don't have to say which is cause and effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they yeah. Each other. We're just oh well, maybe, maybe uh, we don't know, right? Like we, it may be that they cause each other. It may be that there's a vicious cycle. It may be that one one is the cause and one is the effect. I'm I'm not sure. There's an answer in my world. I get a get out of jail free card, which is look, you got a startup. You need to hire some people. I need them to be productive today. I actually am going to be dead as a company if I'm not, haven't figured this out in a year. I can't build a time machine and go back and train the people that I need to hire today. All I can do is bid more money for new people, which is exactly what you see in the market, right? Like the salaries are crazy because that's my option. I can, I can just buy these people as they are today. So my perspective is skewed by the way that I look at startups as opposed to big, big companies. I'm sympathetic to the big company problem of, well, it's just more rational for me to buy this talent than it is to, you know, it it would have to be a ridiculous human rationality failure if training workers were actually super valuable and no one does it. Obviously there are economic reasons why no one trains their workers. I mean, I, this is where uh, Tim and I maybe, you know, disagree. And we've talked about this a little bit. I think, you know, my struggle with Tim's perspective and his, his book is great. Everybody should go read it. Uh, WTF is what it's called. And he's, he's uh, talked a lot about the stuff that's worth listening to his perspective. I think at the end of the day, when I hear Tim talking about what needs to be fixed, he's really talking about corporate culture, which is not a bad thing to talk about. But I sort of feel like we're looking for a benevolent overlord as opposed to saying like, okay, well, look, let's just create an incentive system where these people make choices that are good for workers or we're, we're helping those workers be in a position where their relationship with that business is going to be more healthy, which is why I fall back. And maybe this is wrong on the, you know, education, education and training and so on. I mean, I like education. I think education is important. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of, it, it, it's not magic. There's a lot of things it can't do. Yeah, and that yeah. we've we've got a good education system, and people think that America has a bad education system. We don't have the world's best, obviously. Like Finland is better than us in a couple, and I mean, like, but we've got a really good one, actually. Uh, I would say, you know, not 
really good. I would maybe seventy no, fine. I, I mean, I would say we're at seventy fifth percentile of quality in terms of international education systems of rich countries, and that's not terrible. And we we're supposed to think our and in fact proved a lot. I mean, and so the idea that we that we can educate our way to greater equality, economic equality, has been disproven. It's just not true. You can look at. I mean, like obviously, educational attainment has has just increased massively, even as income inequality has gone up. Isn't the first order problem though um, income insecurity is uh, income insecurity as opposed to income inequality? So, in other words, right? Like you could imagine Jeff Bezos having you know ninety eight percent of the money, but we live in a world where we're all doing much better than we are today. The Gini coefficient is much higher, but we're all in practical terms wealthier. That seems more useful to me to think about income insecurity than income inequality. Would you disagree? Like, do you no, think? I, I I agree. I think um, economic insecurity in general yeah, is a big is a better term. Yeah, because it's not just income insecurity. It's it's also stuff. It's not just stuff that makes you lose your job. It's stuff that makes you have to pay too much. So, like, there there just came out a paper showing that most people who have a, a family member get cancer drain their savings entire savings within two years. So basically, mm-hmm. cancer means you're fucked. In yep. Yep. Yeah, I think you um, talked today about healthcare um, yeah. on the specific issue, right? And I'm, that maybe you and want so, to talk a little bit about that, right? I would say where where are we getting insecurity? We're getting it from medical, we're getting it from uh, evictions, mm-hmm. we're getting it from unemployment to a certain degree, but that's not as big a deal as you might think. But but it's still important. Um, yep, yep. So uh, that's a distant third. I would say that medical is number one, evictions number two. Most people aren't going to get evicted. Poor people get evicted. So, but, so it hurts the most vulnerable people in society. Have you read the book Evicted, by the way? I have not. That book is a better qualitative description of life and poverty in America and how poverty works. It's from the 90s. So it's outdated. I mean, the, well, the, the field work is from the 90s. But it is an amazing description of what it's like to be poor in America. So read that book. Like um, broadly, because there's a bunch of work on um, the high cost of being poor in terms of... Yes, this will bring it home. This will show you exactly what it is. You know, if we just had government health insurance, so many of these things that people worry about would just not be things that people worry that much about. If we had good government health insurance, yep, yep. government health insurance, it would mean that cancer didn't bankrupt you. It's going to cost society a lot. It's going to be a difficult system to set up and conservatives are just going to howl all day. I mean, you, you saw how they howled about Obamacare and partially derailed it. Yeah, but this, I mean, this is, this is a purely, I mean, the irony here is, right, like Obamacare was a market reform, right? Like this is a market reform that caught, like solved some of these medical bankruptcies thing. I mean, I'm investing in companies in the healthcare space that are going to keep people from dying and lower cost of service. And they're only possible because of the ACA. So, I mean, I think there's sort of the political discussion and then there's the reality. I mean, I, I look at this right. and, you know, there's a real problem where if you want to start a company and you don't have a spouse that has employer tied healthcare, it's actually really hard for you, oh, right? You have screwed. to think about it, right? So I, I, I tend to think if you're having a, but my, my personal opinion is that if you're having a non-ideological conversation about these things, these are very market-oriented policies, right? It's like, look, like you as someone who consumes healthcare, right? Like you're a human being and you live. What do we know? You're going to get sick and you're going to die. At some, these are things that we know, right? There's not much right. else we can say about you, but <laughs> we, we know at some point you're going to get sick. It's okay. 
um, you are going to consume healthcare, right? So the way to think about this, and forgive me the rant, but the way to think about this is, well, if you have healthcare, you are paying for it either directly or through transfers. If you don't have healthcare, I'm paying for it because you are a free rider. So if you want a market, right, you have to concede first that everybody is consuming these. And now we're just having a debate about the most efficient way to pay for this product, right? So I, I guess I tend to think that there's no conflict between um, some of the policies you're talking about and capitalism. These are just things that ideologues say because they're cranky and want, want a specific, um, they just want to bitch about marginal tax rates. So I'll, I'll end my yes. rant there. Uh, you can give it an amen or, or add to it or uh, disabuse me of these notions, but um, I suspect we're mostly aligned. Oh, no, yeah, I, th- I think we are mostly aligned. And um, if we had a government healthcare system like every other rich country has, uh, it would be a lot easier to switch jobs. It would be a lot easier to start a business. I'm it's curious on that particular one, and this is a good uh, sort of shift into talking about policy. You know, we talk about government healthcare, and that's just, there's a Public lot insurance. of... Uh, so, yeah, so that, that's really what I was getting at, right? Like yeah. you have the NHS model, and you have no, the German model, and you have all these other models. Do you have a particular flavor of universal coverage that makes sense to you? And then maybe the sort of the, the uh, related question is they're sort of in idealized terms. And then there's given where we're at in America, where do we go from here? Right. Japan does really well. The, Japan has a bazillion old people, but they also have extremely low costs. And that's not just like low cost because people are healthier, you know, because they're not as fat, whatever. It's low cost per procedure. Like a- any procedure costs less in Japan. Do you have a perspective on what drives that and what's the structure? Oh, yeah, they control prices? Yeah, they okay. Well, there you go. It controls prices. Yeah, they have, there you of, go. they have a board where a bunch of doctors sit around and say, how high will we let the price for this get or not get? It's we don't have to do the same thing, but we can have the same thing via a uh, like single negotiator. Yeah. So basically, like if we just had you know the Medicare system cover everybody, Medicare could look around and say, like, oh my God, you're charging this much? No, you're not. Like, hospitally, you're charging like $100 for this, like, pillow or whatever? No, you're not. Like, $40 toothbrush? Nope, not going to happen because it's the only game in town. You know, it's, it's the overwhelming main buyer. And of course, you could already have Medicare do a lot of this since Medicare is already so big, but we don't really yeah, we don't, let yeah. Medicare just kick everyone's ass with negotiation. And we have to because we have such elaborate cost overruns in American healthcare is ridiculous. So I'm sure there's someone out there whose head is exploding at this idea of um, price controls, right? Which typically don't work across other segments of the economy. My thinking, and I'd be curious how you think about this, is that the reason they actually make sense in healthcare and maybe nowhere else is we are not capable buyers of these products. We just don't know how to think about them and price them. And so there is a market failure there. Is that how you think about it? Or like why price controls in healthcare and not in food? Well, one reason is because if staple grains got too expensive, if people were actually, you know, like not able to buy food that, you know, to keep them full, we would control the price of food in a heartbeat. It's just, we don't face that situation. Healthcare is a thing where a lot of things will kill you if you don't get them. And some of those things are actually too expensive for society to buy. And some of those things are not too expensive for society to buy. With food, you can pretty much keep your belly full for pretty cheap. Um, So food is a bit different. Um, The second thing is that we actually do have a lot of subsidies for food. I mean, food stamps, basically we say like, however much food people want to charge, 
we're going to pay you enough so that you can get enough food to live with these food stamps or SNAP, you know, program. And, and that's a, and that's a single payer thing. So obviously we do have massive intervention already in the food market. If you simply subsidize healthcare, because there's no such thing as enough healthcare, but there is such thing as enough food, you get satiated on food, on calories, but you don't get satiated on healthcare. We can't just give you healthcare stamps because your people can use it for more and more and more. But we have very strong social norms that everybody should have food, and we have slightly weaker social norms that everyone should have health. I mean, it seems like most of the sub. When I think about food subsidies, I think primarily about bad subsidies, which presumably, like, we oh, make so too much sugar and subsidies. corn and whatnot. Yeah, producer subsidies. Yeah, right. I mean, it seems like SNAP is. You're basically just saying like, you need enough money to buy food. There's this market that works, right? So the cost of that item on the shelf is properly priced because even if you aren't paying market rate, everybody else is. So the market really takes care of itself and maybe there's too much sugar on the shelf. So you'd probably argue for fewer subsidies. Oh, pre- at least producer, producer subsidies. subsidies, right. Yeah, yeah, none, yeah, yeah. Circling back a little bit to education, I'm curious how you would think about education policy vis-a-vis labor, right? Because we've got, I mean, I think you alluded to this, if you look at the data on schooling, like college specifically, the primary function seems to be signaling as opposed to uh, skills. But nonetheless, it's uh, causal, right? Like uh, going to college is rational because you'll just make more money. How do you think about a better education policy in this world in which uh, obviously college is costing more and more? It may not be for everybody. Um, we do need a higher skilled. My assumption is labor force going forward. Like what, what do we do? So, we aim at making at, at using college. College is a very regressive system. It uh, it basically takes says you know if you're a rich kid you get a boost into the ranks of the rich. We have to make this a more progressive system, and what we have to do with that is we should subsidize college for poor people through grants, not loans, because you're going to trap people in debt. So just give them give them money to go to college. Uh, we can use state schools. We can funnel need-based financial aid through state schools, basically making state schools free for every poor person. And we'll have like a gradation where middle-class people don't pay as much. And then the richer you get, the more you pay. We already do that at private schools. They do that at like Stanford, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can obviously do that at public schools too. Everybody fills out a FAFSA. Um, We can make community college basically free uh, for anyone who wants to go. Obviously, it's not really free because you have opportunity cost of time, but no one talks mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. Um, so college is never actually free. So people, um, we're not going to get like massive, massive, uh, you know, sort of, you know, we're not going to get like everyone wanting to go to college just because it's, it's a party, free party. It won't be like that. You still have to give up time. Pretty good party, though. Community college, well, on the show community was good for about two seasons. Yeah. So basically, through free community college, cheap state school and sort of like free state school for poor people, we can do that. We can fix all the, the problems. There's, there's no reason to give like rich people free. Yeah. But when you look at, so, so, I think I have a sense of how you think about it, but when you look at like a Bernie education for all policy, it just doesn't make sense because the cost of paying for rich kids to go to college for free, we should just take that money and do something else with it or yeah. have lower yeah. taxes on the rich, let's say. Yeah. 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 Lower marginal tax rates. We've got you on the right. Lower marginal taxes on the rich. (laughs) We should, you know, take the money that we would spend sending rich people to college and spend on something else. Of course, now you've got the MMT people who say, actually, you don't need money, tax money for anything. And like, actually, taxes don't pay for spending and spending just happens because you create money out of thin air. And so you can do as much as you like. 
blah, 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 blah. So now we've got those people running around, which makes it a lot harder to talk about any of these trade-offs because they're saying the trade-offs don't exist, which yeah. is everybody would like to see. Yeah. Moving our way through sort of uh, different aspects of labor policy, I guess I've been thinking a lot recently about childcare policy, right? Here's another area of the economy where things are getting more and more expensive. This is incredibly expensive to send your kids to school. And so you look at dual income families, particularly with highly educated couples, right? And you see people dropping out of the workforce that would otherwise be very productive because you kind of do the math on it. You're like, right. oh, like by the time I pay for my kids' schooling and I pay my taxes, this is how much incremental take-home pay we have. And you know what? I'm just going to drop out of the workforce. How do you think about their income tax credit and childcare kickbacks on your taxes and whatnot? And where should we go from here? Because it seems I mean, to me... The ITC and childcare tax credit are very successful anti-poverty policies and we should expand them. Yeah, great. And that's as simple as it is. It's just like, yeah. let's, uh, yeah. Or, okay. yeah. Um, I'm curious, have you looked you at the also, Interestingly, by the way, you can take the ITC and you can say the minimum amount of money you get when you, if you have zero income, you can have the the bottom not be zero. You can have it be like 3000 or 4000 And so then you just put a universal basic income in the EITC. Yeah, um, that's interesting. So you can do uh, that. But of course, that's not going to be enough for people to live on. So it's more of just like a uh, an emergency fund. Do you have an opinion on how you think about, I mean, there's these stats around emergency savings and the lack thereof. Do you have an opinion on how to, how to think about solutions to that problem? I've seen people working on this problem in the nonprofit sector, and it seems to be very challenging to do. Like there's a lot, of, the behavioral economics crowd is really into like, how do we create structures that encourage people to save on their own? And it seems to me that the reality is like that stuff's all good, but the effect is very weak because at the end of the day, when your car breaks down, you need to go fix it. And you just, right. that's your money. So it, right. I, I suspect that the solution here is governmental, but um, I'm curious if you've thought at all about how to create some emergency savings or how to think about that problem. Well, if people don't want to do emergency savings, it's going to be very difficult to do it for them because we can make it set up an emergency fund for people, but they're just going to tap it. Yeah, exactly. Well, like this, I read something recently suggesting that big tax rebates are actually a really good thing and kind of going through an argument with some, some data. I don't know that it was rigorous data suggesting that actually getting a big check uh, once a year is really great for families and their savings and so on. And I, I don't know a strong opinion on that, but it is an, is a provocative claim and very different from what the rational economist might say about Right. You know, an if you want board. to nudge people to save more, there's various ways to do that. Yeah. That's one of the most interesting fields of behavioral economics. Yeah. I'm curious how you think about behavioral economics in general. And um, I think like a lot of folks, you know, I got very infatuated with it and went through the research. And I think it does inform how I think about um, behavior and technology and so on. But uh, I'm less infatuated with it than I was years ago. I mean, do you think this field is like, this is the hot shit and where we should be all Actually, it's the hot shit in macro, interestingly. So macroeconomics was long resistant to behavioral, and now they're starting to incorporate some things. But of course, macro is the field where nobody really knows what's going on no matter what. Another interesting thing about behavioral is that private sector economists, you know, where you actually have to, you're designing like online auctions and online marketplaces and platforms and stuff like that. And basically, you have to design it well or you lose money. Like, mm -hmm whoever designs the better marketplace will like extract more money. And so there's, it's a, you know, it's a high stakes thing where you're either you're wrong or you're right. It's an engineering field, right? It's very micro. 
And people I knew in grad school who were extremely like against behavioral economics and like never want to use behavioral, never want to use behavioral. Like they're at Amazon, they're at uh, (laughs) wherever, and they're using behavioral now. Like sometimes behavioral works. And of course, the cynical view is that behavioral economics is actually useful, but as a tool of evil. It's a, it's a, if you understand behavioral economics, you actually understand how to swindle whole marketplaces full of people at once. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, these are uh, tools are, you know, I, I tend to think about it as a zero sum game where if you discover a new behavioral insight, it will be useful to those who want to convince you to do something that is in their interest. And it may be useful to you if you want to help that person make a decision that's in their best interest, right? So it's like, these tools exist, people will use them to convince you to gamble more, spend more, whatever, and jury is out. I think the the problem in protecting you with these tools is more about how you get access to that consumer, right? Because the person who can profit off of getting them to make a decision can spend money to get to them. And if you want to get them to not spend money... Um, right. it's, it's very hard to sell there's vegetables. There's a lot more right? ways. There's a, if we think of like the natural market outcomes as fair, then behavioral economics is definitely cheating. Like, yeah. Because someone selling you stuff, someone who has time to like sit there and be rational and take a long time to think about how to trick you is more powerful than you. And so behavioral economics is often a tool of the powerful to swindle people. However, economists and academics doing behavioral economics might be able to find those swindles and help guard against them with either laws or just like human behavior. Yeah, well, a good example of this is the the policy to set the defaults to be opt-out versus opt-in for 401k, right? A good example of policy. Yeah, policies to like show people wealth management fees in like a, you know, a sort of a projected total amount instead of just a yearly amount. Yep. Yeah, uh, these that's are the, the one I want. Nobody wants to do that. But I want. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the I mean, this is the challenge with policy problems is you've got to get the laws passed or yeah. policy solutions rather. Um, I, so I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit more through some some policy areas that affect uh, labor and jobs. And then maybe Eric wants to uh, jump in with some other topics like setting aside the non green part of the Green New Deal and understanding that this is a broad thing and not necessarily a precise set of policies yet. Well, what's in that bucket that you think is compelling more more from a jobs perspective uh, rather than like a stimulus perspective? I think that's that's more straightforward. We could just spend money to stimulate the economy. But to me, I'm more interested in like, how do we create sectors of the economy that actually have sustainable employment? And how do we create a tech technology advantage vis-a-vis other countries that might be investing in these in these areas such that we build those things Um, here yes so if you have basically um you build a great infrastructure you subsidize a lot of research you subsidize exports of green technology which is a thing i want to do that wasn't in the green new deal and basically you have uh you sort of create automatic demand for a lot of these things by mandating like, you know, replacing coal plants with solar and blah, blah, blah. And you're going to create a lot of jobs. You're going to create jobs directly through like the people who build the infrastructure. You're going to create jobs indirectly through the jobs facilitated, the companies and economic activity facilitated by that infrastructure. Assuming the Green New Deal doesn't manage to convert our economy to a socialist economy that doesn't actually have private sector jobs, we'll see. Yeah, no, you, you basically, there's a lot, a lot of different ways that this kind of big effort would create jobs. They're not mutually exclusive, but how do you think about 
uh, pricing the externalities of carbon as a broad policy versus some of these very specific subsidies, right? Because eventually at scale, these technologies right. just, the market just works and you don't need to subsidize them. But carbon, you could also... tax is, carbon tax is good, but there's a big problem. What you have actually here is two externalities, not one. And the, the second externality is the research externality. The fact that private companies in general will not pay enough money to develop a technology, even if you have a carbon tax there as the incentive to do that. I guess I don't understand, like, why, what's the explanation for that failure? I'll explain. You know, suppose that, like, we're not talking about anything with a carbon externality or whatever. It's just, like, a better way, like, a better communications technology, the internet. Companies in, back in, like, 1980s didn't really have much incentive to create the internet. They wanted to create closed information networks they could dominate. Yeah, the information superhighway. They wanted to create private databases, basically. Nobody could could capture the value. No company could capture the value of the entire internet because we didn't have Amazon and Google. No, I'm kidding. Um, No company (laughs) could capture the value of the entire internet because everybody else could jump on this platform and use it. And like you could charge everybody. You could charge a toll. You could have one person like create an internet that everybody else could use, but not be able to, what you would do is you'd choke off a lot of the value that would be created through people who basically couldn't afford to pay your toll. But, um, so this is, this is, you get this with road systems too. You see toll road systems basically don't generate as much economic activity because you can't set your toll to capture the economic value of third parties doing a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'd like to apply it to um, the kinds of technology we're talking about, but I, I, maybe to, to push back a little bit. No, no company would, would create the open, cheap, free internet. No, that's totally true. Now. And obviously like and, not only wouldn't they, but they didn't. Right. So historically we can just say it's a fact that this came out of government research. And, and, and okay. So let's, let's talk about research external, pure research externalities. Right. Suppose I discover the formula for penicillin, right? Massive, massive value for antibiotics, right? Like they've created untold value. But someone else hears the formula. I, I can try really hard to keep it secret, but someone else is going to find it, right? They found out how to make nuclear bombs. They're going to find out how to make penicillin. Someone's going to get the idea. And once they know the idea, the amount that it costs to duplicate that idea is negligible compared to the amount that it costs to find the idea. Sure, so sure. I mean, that's like patent systems and blah, 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 and heavy industrial secret apparatus, blah, 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 to try to stop this. But in the, at the end of the day, the most efficient thing to do is simply have government have some smart guys and gals in rooms just looking for... Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, I, I'm compelled by that with respect to basic research. I, I, yes. I think that's right. Basic research. Look, like, there are uh, timelines... Less so. Yeah, I mean, I, I would look at the internet, though, particularly... Although look at what DARPA has done. Look at what DARPA has done. Yeah, so DARPA's done... I, I think there's some really interesting things government can do that don't aren't done by industry. Uh, to me, that's, you know, the more it looks like basic research, the more that's obviously true. I think the interesting case of the internet is, like we don't know yet if the blockchain is going to matter, right? But an interesting property of the modern era, which I think I think has been really, it kind of came and it went, was this uh, the sort of the Clay Shirky idea of the cognitive surplus, right? Like we're all sitting around, we're pretty rich, we're pretty smart, our big monkey brains want to do cool shit. And so we make Linux and we make, you know, blockchain and we make these crazy things, right? 
And because they have um, a zero marginal cost of production and because um, smart people can make them well, also paying their rent, doing things that they drive income from otherwise, it's not obvious to me that the next internet needs to be built by the government. Maybe it does. You know, when I look at new solar and new hydro and some of these other technologies, just broadly, where I'd be looking for you, if you were going to convince me that the government should be investing heavily into these areas directly, as opposed to just, you know, taxing carbon and creating the right market incentives, I guess I'd need to be convinced that like I, as a startup investor, couldn't put money into these things and get the kind of return that I need to get, right? That I'd rather invest in some, you know, stupid app for sharing music videos or something, right? right? Like, so what's interesting is that how many companies do you know have made shit tons of money for investors in solar? Uh, well, had Al Gore uh, won the presidency in 2000, uh, we might have a number to that, right? Like, No, tell me. This is a fun, I, I, I actually very don't few, know right? the number. Very, very few American companies. I mean, you have First Solar, a couple others. Very few American companies have made a hell of a lot of money in solar power. But look at, and, and one of the biggest reasons for that is China came in and just massively subsidized. Yeah, and also we subsidized the shit out of carbon, right? Well, no, that's actually not a big reason. You're just talking about the cost of solar panels I'm in talking China. About, no, I, what I'm talking about really fundamentally is the problem that solar companies are, don't have much of a moat. And if you don't have much of a moat, the zero profit hits you. If you have a, an activity that's economically very important and viable and cheap and economical, but where producers are commoditized producers, uh, very close to zero profit, massive consumer surplus. You see the classic examples, agriculture and food without like big agribusiness subsidies and blah, 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 blah. Farmers make very close to zero profits because one farmer is much the same as another farmer. Um, The only way you can really make profits is by sort of shooting people and like hoarding land and stuff like that which is why we had wars for so many thousands of years in the agricultural age constantly. The reason we had wars is because of the zero profit condition on farming. That's it. And the reason we have fewer wars now is because we have increasing returns to scale so people can make profits without shooting other people. But anyway, there's my potted history of the planet. <laughs> it's an interesting argument. I'm going to have to digest that before I even oh, yeah. express an opinion on it. I didn't make it. that up. <laughs> but anyway, solar is like that. Utilities can make money from it because they have natural monopolies, whatever. But solar power, solar producers are pretty commodified. And because of that, you don't see a hell of a lot of investors making many companies making profit on solar. But you see massive, massive levels of solar installation, huge capex in solar installation. And remember, Silicon Valley people think in terms of what will make money for founders, what will make money for VCs, what will make a lot of profit and get, or at least get a lot of stock market capitalization, what will make me money? And the thing that makes a Silicon Valley person money isn't necessarily a thing that makes the economy grow in value. Yeah, I mean, I think there's non-monetized value. I'm talking about I'm talking about commoditized value. I'm talking about value that entrepreneurs and investors cannot capture, but which consumers capture. And in this case, the consumers of solar have captured a huge amount of value, even as the producers of solar, at least in America and probably everywhere, haven't captured much value. Well, I mean, there are places there are places in the solar. You don't have to make your money on the panels, right? Like we can have uh, we can buy these things from China and build business models around um, installation. I believe there are companies that will basically lease you the panels on your roof and they're taking advantage of, of subsidies. Opower is an example of a company that went public that doesn't make 
anything, right? They make software, but what they're doing is they're helping, they're helping, hey, do you know this company? They help help uh, power companies reduce consumption, which makes those companies profit. Heard, they, yeah. yeah, so yeah. They're, 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 I think they're There's perfectly, There's yeah, things you can do. I don't know that those are, I mean, energy is a huge freaking industry, right? It's not a niche. So like, I think right. there are, I know people who will say that like, you know, replacing fossil fuels with clean energy is bullshit because of the clean tech bucks. Oh, all this clean tech companies lost money. And I'm like, clean tech companies losing money is how we go green. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's like, well, you know, yeah, sure. Your profits if, don't equal the health of, of the, the consumer surplus. Yeah. Well, and you can't compete. Look, this is where you, yeah, I just look at it as, as the single market failure of when we make the bad stuff artificially cheap, of course you can't make profit. You're basically competing against the government. That's just a bad idea. You're always going to lose because they have infinite resources to subsidize well, your, uh, your competitor. So we've talked through a number of, of policy areas. Um, were there any that we missed that you're like, you know what? Here's the big one on my wish list when I think about improving the the labor landscape, jobs, the economy more broadly. Like, what's your what's your hobby horse that we haven't? Had? Oh, uh, co-determination is an interesting idea. Oh, huh. Do you uh, want to like? So I've read a little bit about this, but do you want to? I'm sure a lot of people have no idea what you just said. You give workers. See, you give workers seats on corporate boards and you create workers' councils. So basically workers have more of a stake in the corporation. You insist that, basically you insist that every company be partly, but not completely worker-owned. Workers have a minority stake. So basically you insist that like you, you reserve some percent of the company uh, board seats, corporate control, not ownership, for workers, you know, give them 30% of the control, whatever. And then you sit and... And although one thing this does is allows them to vote themselves higher wages, but it, they won't necessarily vote themselves so high wages that they screw the company, right? Because they don't want to screw the company because they have an interest in working for it in the future. They don't want to send it under. And this is um, a big deal in Germany, right? Where they, I mean, it seems like a crazy idea. I think a lot of people are, you know. Yeah, it works in Germany. Yeah. And, and the other thing is that actually uh, workers know a lot about the internal workings of the corporation, have a lot of input into how to make companies actually more productive. And so instead of just sort of hearing about everything up through filtering up through the management chain, you get direct worker input to the boards on like what kind of things would improve production efficiency. And do you so, think that the Warren plan on this is like, is that the gold standard or is her, her it's not the gold take standard, on this bad? Actually. It's no. fine. It's good, but it, it doesn't include the worker councils. It includes the board seat part, but not the councils. Mm-hmm. So I would add the council. And that the idea there being that that would be better for um, worker pay and corporate health. Yeah, worker pay, sort of employment levels. Yeah. And is this, do you think about this, um, like how do you think about this vis-a-vis traditional unions? Is this a better structure? Uh, Is this a better structure or this is just a structure we can have in a world where unions just don't work at all in America? About unions, it's very complicated and I have a lot of, complicated things to say about that that we don't really have time for. But I do think unions will have a place, but I think that this system will in many ways supplant the traditional sort of oppositional strike-based, you know, sort of hardball negotiation-based zero-sum fights between management and unions. And instead, you'll have a more cooperative relationship between owners and managers and workers. And that's what we really need. Um, that's an interesting. It'd be interesting, interesting to see how those ideas would play out, and see if some of the challenges with unions would just 
redevelop or if you could create a better structure. I actually don't know that much about the Germany, the Germany model. Um, it's on my list to go read more about and maybe uh, listeners can, can look into this stuff as well. Yeah. So we've, we've sort of alluded to some of these uh, or some of the broad problem. And I, I, and effectively this is the idea that look, if you have productive industries and unproductive industries, so say industries that are affected by software and to some extent hardware, and then industries that just aren't right. Your um, wealth manager isn't getting more productive. My childcare provider can only take care of four kids. And I don't imagine us replacing that person with a robot. Are we, moving towards a world where these differences in productivity increases, making the cost of these service-based low productive industries so high that um, we either have to solve those things with software and automation. And so we can all just kind of hang out or have progressively more transfers until everybody either works in one of these service industries or is one of the three people who owns the capital that controls all the software, right? Like in other words, do we need a like a uh, call to action on going and attacking construction and healthcare and so on and so forth, such that we don't end up in this, you know, uh, what I think conservatives would call the hellscape of, you know, uh, high marginal tax tax rates and transfers just to deal with the fact that we need to afford uh, services. It's a long-winded version of the question. I apologize. It seems that as software is eating parts of the world. Um, that's pushing labor just definitionally into the other parts of the world, right? So, um, cost disease. Uh, yeah, exactly. This is cost disease, right? So, is the trajectory that we're currently on um, such that those parts of the economy just eat it? And it seems that if that's the case, we end up in a world where you just have to keep raising taxes and keep introducing transfers just so people can afford just the services that they're getting from these unproductive industries. Is that is that a potential problem and something we should be thinking about, or you're just not compelled by the idea of cost disease and this is just not a big deal. Cost disease is real. You know, it's real. I don't know. I mean, obviously if you, if you can innovate in an area, then do it right. If you can figure out a way to replace education with distance education, you do it. No one's figured it out so far. And a lot of people have tried, but don't let that stop you. I have some, I think I have some theories that are out of scope for this podcast, but on another day, we can talk about that particular problem. I basically think the framing of the problem is, is wrong. We just need to think about it in a different way, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about this too much. If everybody ends up getting paid to read each other bedtime stories and that's all we do, eh, you know, it's fine. <laughs> all right. Well, that's good to hear. Guys, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for both joining. If there was, uh, if readers want to learn more, where might you point them? Uh, any any reading you think they should, uh, or conversation they should listen to to um, continue their learning in this, in this topic? Go to the Washington Center for Equitable Growth and read everything the Washington Center for Equitable Growth puts out. Okay, take care, both Parker and Noah. Talk, talk to you both soon. Great, awesome, guys. Thanks. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.